had a dream about this place. Talking about that machine that they've been building since World War II at the start of last week's show, and I suppose we we may as well go and name it right now. So there's no great surprise. It's basically the economic and social order under which we live now. You know what some people call neoliberalism, and what I find particularly interesting about. The story of Western intelligence in the years immediately following World War II is how you can read so much of what they did, especially when it came to you know the destabilization、um, campaigns and regime change bloodbaths that they unleashed in this fight against communism, or even the merest whiff of communism. You can see it as springing from a kind of you know proto neoliberal. Logic, really,、um, and really, for all the the academies, we're just describing capitalist logic here. You know, there's that old joke about how neoliberalism isn't actually new, and of course, you know, it's not very surprising that the economists pushing the philosophy and the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence mostly came from old money, you know, or very well connected families.、Um, We can see as well how the mindset was totally at ease with fascism right from the beginning. You know, guys like Dulles and Prescott Bush, they were happy to work with the Nazis before and during World War Two. And we'll remember, of course, that you know fascism wasn't really defeated; it was pruned of its more excessive tendencies, and it was incorporated into this post-war order. And you know, the surviving fascist groups just dispersed. All over the world, and they created these subterranean networks, and they just waited to be activated. You know, when it was time to kill some trade unionists or communists or coup leftist government or something. I mean, it was a public relations expert in Edward Bernays who helped sell the coup in Guatemala. You know, for fuck's sake! And the CIA was born of a collaboration between Wall Street and City of London operatives who were. Basically, looking to open new markets for Western capital, hemming the threat of communism, and this was all whether those those new markets wanted them there or not. And of course, Chile was picked as the lab where the Chicago boys tested their plans for the rest of the world. Now, Sullivan and Cromwell, the Dulles brothers' law firm, that was a key recruiting conduit for the CIA. You had companies like United Fruit. You know they were big clients of Sullivan and Cromwell. And incidentally, United Fruit was actually nicknamed the Octopus、um, in Latin America and the Caribbean because of the way that its 
tentacles reached into so many levels of institutional power in those places and then subverted them, you know, towards its own ends. And, you know, not for nothing, but the mafia has also been called the octopus from time to time. And then you get this all kind of bubbling away and Bush is then director of the CIA. He turbocharges this uh, collaboration, this partnership between uh, the state intelligence services and the private sector and basically helped restore Alan Dulles's original vision for the agency after all that trouble and upheaval in the 70s, you know. And the key thing to remember, no matter what people tell you, is that neoliberalism requires destabilization and precarity and media control and state violence and corporate subversion of public institutions to flourish. And this is what the CIA and MI6 and other Western intelligence agencies and think tanks and governments are basically there to facilitate. You know, Thatcher's statement that there is no alternative, that is wholly writ to these people. Now, this is the machine I was talking about. And increasingly, you know, with the rise of new technologies, the tendency has been for governments to leave the business of governing to the algorithmic logic of markets and the surveillance state. And we only really need to look out the window to see how well that's going. And we now live in a time where this machine now is juddering and falling apart and it's spitting fire and smoke and nobody in ostensible control of it is quite sure how to fix it. And in turn, you know, because of this atomization and apathy and precarity that is fostered by a neoliberal social order, the vast majority of people are just too run ragged to know or do much about the security state colluding with corporations and organized crime to enrich these oligarch factions who control, you know, the media, the politicians, the law, and influence almost every aspect of our lives. So there's that old saw about how conspiracies can't be real because people can't keep secrets, but people come forward with horror stories all the time about how things really work. And if we don't, you know, lock those people up or kill them, they get relegated to the margins because very often there is fuck all that anyone can do about the things that they expose. Uh, we've explored example after example uh, just in this mini-series alone. So we have a brief period of something like social democracy after World War II, but the pushback is underway almost immediately. And now I think you can say that we're in a time where the corruption and the conspiracies, um, if you will, they're almost automated. And neoliberalism and its associated technologies and this suicidal drive for ever more growth and profit works its will upon the actors who rise through these decaying institutions and they in turn make policy or collaborate with other poisoned subjects and generate very little other than chaos and violence and instability. And then they provide what we are told are the solutions to the problems that they caused in the first place, 
which usually boil down to more prisons, more surveillance, more bombs, more corporate deregulation, more transfers of money out of public hands and into the offshore accounts of the oligarchs. And by the way, we're told these oligarchs have such unique entrepreneurial skills and future-facing dynamism that they are indispensable to society, especially, you know, if we want society to survive the existential threats that come in, like climate collapse, for instance. So this is the inevitable outcome when the people who run everything and have power that kind of reproduces down the generations are habituated to what Oglesby uh, described as the practice of an entire class in which a multitude of conspiracies contend in the night. So conspiracy and corruption just become the state of things, but we don't call it conspiracy or corruption, we just call it politics, you know. Um, and we call accepting that we, we can change nothing beyond our consumption habits or which AI we vote for in elections, um, we call that freedom. So this is how the people in charge of this system have always been for hundreds of years, ever since the first capitalists appeared. And for a brief moment in time, we didn't notice it as much because your parents and your grandparents' money bought more and, you know, they could quit a job on Friday and have a new one by Monday. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. So you might be wondering at this point, what in fuck does any of this have to do with Arkansas or the octopus? Well, for one thing, if you've been paying attention for the last 20 hours now, you should know. And for another, Arkansas represents, for me, something deeper than just drug deals and contract killings, you know. Because what happened in Arkansas in the 1980s, and I am saying it happened, I don't give a shit. If anyone wants to argue I'm a conspiracy theorist, frankly, because I've been told too much and I've read too much at this point to dismiss it. Um, what happened there is something totally fascinating. It's a story in miniature of this bigger thing that we've been talking about, this machine. So basically a network headed by a representative of that old money elite, um, George Bush, it collaborated with a network headed by the representative of what would be sold as the new dynamic force in post-Cold War center-left Western politics, you know, Clinton. And they collaborated to facilitate transfers of untold amounts of drugs and money and equipment that was designed ultimately to expand the American imperial frontier and make them both a shitload of money in the process. And that money and that power dissolves what we are told are, you know, political divides, things that uh, give you something resembling a choice every four years or every five years if you live in Britain. And there's also a, a third network or element that appears in Arkansas, um, which is BCCI. Now, these networks, I would say, are very good examples of what Peter Dale Scott would call metagroups. And these networks, these metagroups, for all their wealth and power, what we'll see as we go along tonight is that they are ultimately just functionaries of that endlessly expanding machine. 
And we're also going to see just how resilient this system is, you know, even now, precisely because it has this uncanny ability to neutralize dissent or criticism or exposure by actually incorporating these things into its structure. And then finally, in the figures of Charlene Wilson and a couple of kids we'll talk about later, we see what happens to ordinary people, you know, when they take a wrong turn and they stumble into this, I don't know, strange underworld of hungry ghosts is how I would describe it. Now, Bill Clinton was already well-schooled in machine politics, and he'd effectively been auditioning for the US power elite for years by the time he enters our story, you know, the octopus story. Uh, He was very taken with a a professor that he had at Georgetown called Carol Quigley. Now, Quigley said this, that the two political parties should represent opposed ideals and policies is a foolish idea. The two parties should be almost identical. The policies that are vital and necessary for America are no longer subjects of significant disagreement, but are disputable only in detail, procedure, priority, or method. So Clinton has this in his head from a very early age, you know, and he was probably recruited as an asset for the CIA while he was a Rhodes Scholar uh, here in England, actually. And he spent some time in Europe and the Soviet Union during the peak years of Operation Chaos, for what that's worth. Now, his first bid for the House of Representatives was financed by his uncle Raymond. We mentioned Raymond last time out. He was a slot machine king. He had ties to Carlos Marcello and other members of the the New Orleans Mafia. Uh, Uncle Ray gave Bill 10 grand and laid on free houses and offices that were to be used as a base of operations by his campaign staff. And he narrowly failed to beat the incumbent Republican, John Paul Hammerschmidt. But he had the politics bug after this, and he was determined to eventually become, well, first governor and then president. So as a fast-rising star in Arkansas politics, Bill counted big business donors and advocated a kind of hands-off approach to the state's banking and financial industries. And in 1976, he was elected Arkansas Attorney General. Uh, And it was at this point during this period that Clinton forged very close personal and professional links with a fella called Jackson Stevens, although their early interactions were quite tense, you know, for a brief moment. Now, Stevens was an oil man and an investment banker, and his family's major company uh, was, is Stevens Inc., which is based in Little Rock. This is a uh, a financial services firm with holdings in industries like oil and gas, healthcare, nursing homes, waste management, that kind of thing. And they invested in Walmart very early on and they helped develop it into the monster that it is today. 
The Stevens were known as kingmakers in Arkansas politics. And after sussing each other out, you know, Clintons and Stevens alike, uh, Jackson realized they were willing to do business and he threw his family's full weight behind them. So it's possible you've been wondering what specific connection this Arkansas detour has to the overall octopus story, you know, besides Iran-Contra. I mean, I would argue that it's just always fun to dig up Clinton dirt, but actually we do have a purpose here. Grab that pen and paper. So in 1977, there was a fella called James Riadi. Now he arrived in Arkansas from Jakarta, looking to make his way in the world of American business. James's dad was Mokhtar Riyadi, who was the head of the Lipo Group, which is a multinational based in Indonesia. Riyadi, uh, the younger James, he quickly became very friendly with the Clintons. You know, he shared very similar appetites for boozing, partying, whatnot. Um, and Clinton, Bill, in turn sponsored James's application to be an intern at Stevens Inc. Now, Riyadi's dad, Mokhtar, visited Arkansas on a mission to buy a controlling interest in an American bank, you know. Jackson Stevens served as Mokhtar's agent, and the initial plan was for Lippo to buy Bert Lance's 30% stake in the National Bank of Georgia. Bert Lance was Jimmy Carter's budget director. We've discussed him already in Casino. This deal never happened. And instead, Stevens and Lippo teamed up to buy 30% of Worthen Bank in Arkansas. Now, although the, uh, the MBG deal fell through, Jackson Stevens did find another buyer. And this guy was called Gaith Farayon, who was a frontman for BCCI. This was part of BCCI's beachhead strategy, um, owing to US financial regulations and BCCI's shady reputation. Agar Hassan Abedi, who was the chairman capo of the bank, he decided to infiltrate the American financial system by having frontmen buy controlling interests in smaller U.S. banks with the eventual intention to merge them all together. Uh, you can check out the Casino series for more detail on how this was supposed to work. Stevens is most likely the guy who introduced Bert Lance to Agar Hassan Abedi. And after this, Stevens brought in a couple of BCCI investors on the Lippo-Worthen Bank deal, and they took seats on the board, all of them. Now, Stevens can actually be viewed as BCCI's chief broker or agent in the US. He was the inside man who helped them establish their beachheads. Jackson Stevens serves as a fantastic example of the the bipartisan fixer, you know, someone in the mold of an Epstein, a Khashoggi. He'd been in the same Naval Academy class as Jimmy Carter. He'd remained lifelong friends with him. Carter himself had a very close and murky relationship with Agar Hassan Abedi. Uh, Stevens donated millions to both Carter and Clinton, but he was also a lifelong Republican. And he had very close business links with people like the Bush family, and Saudi representatives like James Bath, um, as BCCI increasingly became the go-to bank for deep operatives in the US, you know, throughout the 1980s. So again, see Casino for more information on James Bath and those Bush-Saudi connections. 
But one thing to bear in mind here is Bath was an investor in Bush Jr.'s Arbusto and an energy firm in the late 70s. And he also had very close business links to the Bin Laden family and Khalid bin Mahfouz. Stevens also brokered the covert BCCI takeover of financial general bank shares. Uh, he worked with the former CIA director, Richard Helms, on this particular deal. And so, owing to these structural deficiencies in Arkansas's political and economic institutions, it has a very long history of uh, machine politics, for lack of a better term. You know, owing to these shortcomings, a guy like Stevens could come to function as a linchpin for different deep lane networks that used the state to facilitate their operations all through the 80s. Stevens was both a middleman and a boss with immense power and influence in politics uh, and business and intelligence circles. And he is possibly the key connecting piece between the Bush and Clinton meta groups. Now, the Clintons knew better than anyone how important it was to have someone like Stevens in their corner as they set their sights on the White House or as, as they would come to set their sights on the White House. So he became a key fundraiser for them. And we talk a lot about networks of reciprocal favors in which people keep each other secrets and through deal making and back scratching, they construct protective shields for themselves and unlock new networking opportunities. A good example of this is the way that Hillary, Vince Foster and Webster Hubble all worked at Rowe's law firm in Little Rock in the 80s. And they would, of course, play important roles in getting Bill into the White House. Now, back then, Rowe's Law's biggest clients were companies that were owned by Jackson Stevens. We're talking systematics and what systematics would become, which is Altel, Walmart, so on and so forth. The firm also played a big role in helping Stevens help BCCI gain a foothold in America. And of course, Hillary would be given a sweetheart no-show gig on the Walmart board. Now, systematics in particular is relevant to the story of uh, not just the octopus, but promise. Because Elliot Richardson, in his capacity as Inslaw's counsel, he directly accused the firm of pirating the enhanced trapdoor version of the software and working with Israeli intelligence to sell it under different names all over the world. Michael Rupert said he had a source, and I know Michael Rupert, but he said he had a source who said Oded Leventer, who was a systematics higher up, he'd overseen a program where Promise was combined with systematics own in-house software products and sold to banks and telecommunications firms owned by Stevens Incorporated. Now, both Richardson and Rupert said they had a very long list of sources who could back all of this up. Jim Norman, who is the senior editor at Forbes, he ended up losing his job over the stories that he wrote about all of this shit uh, in the mid-90s, you know. Uh, the Clintons, Systematics, Arkansas. Well, he says that Systematics not only offered its services as a money launderer for the CIA, but the company was also brought on board William Casey's Follow the Money operation, which is a legendary operation uh, launched by um, Division D, 
which is the CIA and NSA collaborative arm. It was launched by them to track dirty money throughout the world's financial system. We've mentioned it before. I wouldn't be surprised if there were actually elements inside the intelligence community who were working at cross purposes to each other um, here during these follow the money programs. So I can imagine there were some naive indigo children who were using the software to actually try and solve crimes and close down, you know, illicit funding networks. And I can imagine there were others actively facilitating all of this. BCCI was almost certainly using Promise by the late 80s to monitor its vast array of covert operations and keep track of all of its various interests and assets. Uh, I think it's fair to conclude that Jackson Stevens will, at the very least, have been aware of the Promise software, you know. Now, given the bank BCCI, laundered tens of millions in drug money for the emerging South American cartels. There have been strong rumors um, that suggest BCCI staff supplied the promised software to some cartel bosses as a, a gesture of good faith so they could also track their money in the financial system and gain access to real-time information on investigations against them. Now, Oded Leventer has been most often described as the liaison between systematics um, and the Israeli intelligence services. Financial General Bank Shares filed a lawsuit against Jackson Stevens and his partners in 1978 because of the way that they were trying to take over the bank. You know, they suspected, they knew that BCCI was behind these moves. And this led to a few years of tricky legal maneuvering before the BCCI frontmen made another bid for FGB in 1981. Now, a year later, FGB changed its name to First American and BCCI got what it wanted. Clark Clifford, who was a Democrat politician and a BCCI fixer, he served as First American's chairman. So just in case I've lost any of you there, let's summarize. Okay, we've got the Clintons, a young power couple on the make, they connect with and receive support from Jackson Stevens. Jackson Stevens is a powerful behind-the-scenes strange in Arkansas politics. He's also the point man for BCCI's American adventure, the Beachheads operation, which puts him in close proximity to powerful Saudi operatives and the Bush family. At the same time, Stevens is also allowing his firm, Systematics, to become part of an ongoing intelligence operation that's been overseen by William Casey. And it's possible, nay likely, that Systematics was using some version of the promised software to assist the CIA and the NSA in this intelligence operation. Now, lurking in the background of all of this is Kamal Adham, who along with Stevens was aggressively maneuvering to make sure the BCCI takeover of First American went ahead. He was the head of Saudi intelligence up to 1979, I believe. Uh, it's said that it was only after receiving uh, Bush's blessing when Bush was CIA director that Adham set to work helping Abedi transform BCCI into that global financial power, you know, that new place for not just American, but global intelligence services and organized crime groups to do business. We also can't forget 
Khalid bin Mahfouz, another crucial link between uh, American, Israeli, and Saudi intelligence, as well as Pakistani intelligence, who was also more than likely mobbed in with the nucleus of what would become Al-Qaeda and also had been involved in the peddling of promise around the world. The reason I bring up BCCI is because it's extremely important to appreciate the role of that bank in the octopus story, which is why I've made the space for it here tonight. That bank connected many seemingly disparate players and ongoing operations, and it made them all cohere. You know, it's the closest thing I can think of to the octopus's head, you know. Um, and in fact, I don't think that it's accurate really to think of it as a bank. I certainly don't really think of it as a bank anymore, even though I call it that. It was more like a secret state unto itself. It was one that created its own jurisdictions and it helped further develop the architecture of what's being called the supranational deep state. You know, I am not exaggerating here. It even had its own private army, its own uh, clandestine global network of hitmen, and it could subvert entire economies in pursuit of these murky foreign policy objectives that were specific to a tangle of mostly American, British, and Saudi interests, you know. And then you got the Israeli sort of hovering there as well. So we have Clinton rising through the political institutions of Arkansas. And one major reason for why he rose so fast is because he had reliably demonstrated a willingness to play the game. Almost every decision that he made and policy he adopted as governor and that he would adopt and champion as president was all in furtherance of assuring the powers that be that he could be trusted, that he knew how to get along, you know. And in parallel to his rise, we have BCCI and its constituent parts together with the Enterprise Network and its developing Iran-Contra operations bound up in financing death squads and co-crews out of South America and also financing the Mujahideen and heroin trafficking in Afghanistan and laundering the profits from all of this in the city of London in Britain. Uh, through the savings and loans of major banks in the States. And they were still funding, you know, things like Gladio operations in Europe uh, at the same time. And they're arming and equipping both Iraq and Iran during their war. They're selling the bugged copies of Promise around the world. All these players are in search of somewhere to do business. And they converge on Arkansas just as Bill Clinton becomes governor in 1979. So I know there are those of you out there who have doubted me, you know, who wondered how do some of the stops we've made on our journey to land the octopus, how do they all fit together, man? And I know some of you were worried that Arkansas was a last minute detour that may end up in a, a narrative cul-de-sac, so to speak. Well, I told you months ago that this was true long-form storytelling with complexity and nuance aplenty, right? I told you this was a tech age noir story and we couldn't tell it in a linear fashion and you had to trust me, you know? And now, yay, I have delivered 
the threads are drawing together. Fucking get it. So Arkansas was one of many places across the United States that increased and decreased in importance to the broader Iran-Contra affair as circumstances changed. But it was always a hub of clandestine activity, you know, and by the mid-80s, there was enough circumstantial evidence to conclude that it was a major staging post for the operation. Now, the crucial question is how much did Clinton know? It's reasonable to assume that plenty of people in his inner circle were connected directly to Ollie North's scheme. But I think that if Slick Quilly took a hands-on role in drug and arms trafficking, he wouldn't be a very effective operator because he was a facilitator. You know, he was a managerial figure. I think he made a decision not to know too much about what was going on, you know, indirectly pulling strings where he could to ensure things hummed along at a subterranean level. And he extended political protection when he was sure that it wouldn't blow back onto him. And in the meantime, I think he just counted the campaign contributions and didn't ask too many uncomfortable questions, you know. But we do know that Barry Seal, the uh, the coke smuggling pilot, he used Mina Airport as a base of operations and he cleaned his money in Little Rock banks. And he refueled his plane at Mina and then together with an ex-Air America pilot called uh, Terry Reed, who was in turn a business partner of Felix uh, Rodriguez, they trained Contra pilots in everything from supply runs to nighttime landings and evasion techniques. And this is said to have happened in the forest 10 miles to the north of Mina Airport. Oliver North is supposed to have visited on multiple occasions to assess the recruits' progress. The IRS also issued a memo in 1991 that directly named the CIA as being involved in money laundering schemes and covert operations out of Mina. An example of how this indirect influence of Clinton worked in practice um, is the story of Buddy Young, who was Clinton's chief security advisor. Now, Young and an Arkansas state trooper called Tommy Baker tried to fit Terry Reed up for plane theft after Reed quit the Contra training scheme. Uh, it fell under the rubric of North's Project Democracy. And Young apparently became worried that Reed was about to go public with what he knew. Now, as the investigation got underway, Reed's legal team discovered multiple calls going from Tommy Baker's address to Young at the Arkansas governor's mansion uh, in the days around uh, the, the bust on Young. On Reed, sorry. Fucking hell. Even I'm getting confused. So, Young and Baker were also found to have obtained warrants with manufactured evidence. They'd hidden evidence that exonerated Reed in Young's office at Clinton's mansion. And Young had made multiple calls from the office to Reed's parents, where he pretended to be an old school friend so that he could fish for information on uh, Reed's whereabouts. Barry Seal, during this period of time, He'd begun giving information to an IRS agent called Bill Duncan and a state cop called Russell Welch about the money laundering networks in Arkansas that tied into the Contra supply efforts. Duncan and Welch built a 3,000-page long dossier, and they were still collecting more information when Seal was abruptly transferred to his home state of Louisiana on a drug charge, and shortly after this, 
he was assassinated by those Colombian hitmen. Now, they still figured they had a pretty solid case, did uh, Welch and Duncan, and they prepared 35 indictments of Arkansas business and political figures. I won't bother listing them all here, but the majority of them were really close to the Clintons and the governor's mansion, you know. And sure enough, once word leaked out about these indictments, um, state police files related to Mina started to disappear and persons unknown paid as much as $50,000 to Ed Meese to have him kill this Mina investigation. Ed Meese was Reagan's attorney general by this time, and he's another guy who's plugged in to the original theft of promise. Um, both of them, Duncan and Welch, they suffered pretty absurd professional consequences for confronting the Arkansas political machine in this way. Um, Duncan was busted for carrying a concealed weapon uh, in his office in the Capitol building, even though the weapon was his service pistol. And Welch was transferred to a different department in the Arkansas State Police, whereupon he started receiving these late night phone calls that were threatening him and his family. Now, as with Poppy Bush, at all times, Clinton took care to rely on loyal subordinates and fixers who'd fall on their swords if the need arose. And moreover, because the corruption was so widespread and deeply embedded in the institutions of Arkansas, a stunning number of public officials were implicated. You know, Clinton probably knew he could trust this culture of reciprocal favors and secrecy, you know, that people's own self-interest would mean they'd do what they had to do without him needing to ask them directly. Uh, the state police taking it upon themselves to start shredding their MENA files after the announcement of the uh, the indictments. That's an example of this. Now, we'd be remiss if we, we didn't point out that even if Bill wasn't personally unloading keys of coke from these C-130 transport planes. He was still deeply involved in a number of connected financial scams alongside Hillary. One of them was Whitewater, which we've discussed, but just to add a little more detail, the Clintons partnered with a couple of friends in Arkansas, uh, Jim and Susan McDougall, and they bought some undeveloped land and they created the Whitewater Development Corporation off the back of this. And the idea was that they would sell or lease plots of this land um, to people traveling to Arkansas from Chicago and Detroit, mostly. Uh, this is of particular interest because some, not all, but some of these transplants were linked to organized crime and in the cities, and they wanted to put money into Arkansas property because of the, the low taxes and other financial perks available there. Others were just retirees or aspirational types who like the idea of owning a vacation home. So long story short, the business didn't pan out and Jim McDougall wound up using funds from his savings and loan, which was Madison Guarantee, and having friends borrow money on his behalf uh, once he maxed out his credit to cover these uh, development costs and funnel money to Clinton's campaign chest. Hillary also represented one of McDougall's construction firms, which was Castle Grande during this period. Now, we've discussed the savings and loan scheme at length in the Enterprise episode. And here we see another example of Bush's network and its policy choices benefiting the Clintons, albeit unintentionally this time around. Now, to this point, Hillary actually wrote to Jim McDougall shortly after the 1980 election, and she said, 
Quote, if Reaganomics works the way I hope it does, then white water could become an American mecca. Uh, the money that McDougal and his friends were taking out of his SNL moved around Arkansas in very odd ways that should have raised suspicions, but we're told it never did, you know. And at the same time, Clinton had appointed Webster Hubble to head a state ethics commission, and his first job was to find a way to exempt the governor, who of course happened to be Slick Willie, from various regulations and provisions that may have interfered with his ability to make money, like with the Whitewater Development Corporation. Uh, see chapter 10 for more on Webster Hubble. So by the mid-80s, the IRS was sounding the alarm about corruption in Arkansas, and sources and informants were describing how operatives connected to the governor's office and the MENA operations, the Iran-Contra supplies, they were walking duffel bags stuffed with cash into banks and SNLs all over the state. We need to remember the utility of savings and loans to the ongoing Contra war effort and a hundred other crooked schemes that involved organized crime and intelligence agencies. Again, check out Pete Bruton uh, for more information there. There's a terrific interview with him that you can get on YouTube. It's about an hour long or so. Anyway, we shan't get too exhaustively in-depth about the scale of all this financial voodoo, but I recommend you do read more about it. They're really really not fucking joking when they call them the uh, the Clinton crime family. Now, crucially, this level of graft relies on a number of trustworthy bagmen and fixers and this need to delegate responsibility down the chain, um, very similar to a mafia-type method, really. That's why someone like Vince Foster becomes so useful. So there's a DEA informant who reported that an unnamed key figure in the Clinton machine was also involved in drug trafficking out of South America. Uh, a guy called Jerry Parks, one of Clinton's security staff, he confessed to his wife that he was responsible for delivering payoff money to Vince Foster from Mina Airport operations that was intended for Clinton. They met in car parks, they met in bars, offices, wherever seemed safest, you know. Writers like Ambrose Evans Pritchard, Sally Denton, and Sam Smith, they've described Clinton's Arkansas as coming extremely close to being a mini narco state inside the US by the mid 80s. That's how serious this was, people, you know? And this was owing to the way that drug money was just sloshing around so much of the local economy and the widespread corruption this engendered in, you know, local business, politics, and the state and local police as well. You also have the Dixie Mafia here as well, linked very heavily with the Clinton political machine. Guys like Jackson Stevens, they were facilitating these vast money laundering schemes and the CIA was using MENA as this Contra supply base. The whole state was fucked, man. And we aren't arguing here that the Clintons were the source of the corruption in the state. You know, Arkansas, from what I've read uh, in my time, that has had a very long history of organized crime and machine politics. But I am saying that the Clintons' approach to politics was totally in line with how Arkansas historically had been governed. And at some point in the future, we'll probably do an episode about some of the more colorful stories from, you know, the, the Dixie Mafia days. Um, I think we've already discussed Woody Harrelson's dad briefly 
during this series. But he probably merits his own episode at some point because that's amazing, you know. So yeah, we've got all this organized crime involvement. We've got these CIA covert activities going on. Coke money just flooding the entire local economy. This is before we even get to the presence of Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and the Solomon Brothers because they became heavy duty donors to Clinton during the 1984 uh, gubernatorial election. Now, this election is described as the moment where the syndicate really entered into Arkansas in earnest. You know, it was still there, it was still kicking on. And in some cases, what it ended up doing was pushing out or absorbing the old Dixie Mafia types. There was an old boy Arkansas attorney. He told a Clinton biographer called Roger Morris, quote, this was East and West Coast crime money, spotting the same potential in Arkansas that multinational corporations did, which is a pretty searing indictment, really. Um, there was an Arkansas state trooper as well called L.D. Brown. He worked as part of Clinton's security detail. And he says that at certain moments, he acted as a pimp for Bill uh, at times in the 80s. And he told a story about how two CIA agents asked him to work with Barry Seal on a couple of smuggling runs. Brown says that they collected some bags that were stuffed with coke and money from contra camps in Honduras. Once they got back to Arkansas, they kicked these bags out of their cargo plane over fields close to Mina. This is a really important detail that has been corroborated by other accounts from the time. Bear it in mind because it will be coming back later tonight. L.D. Brown also says that he once asked Clinton directly, you know, like, what the fuck is going on, man? Why am I flying to Honduras to collect drug money and coke and shit like this? And Clinton told him, uh, I can't do Bill Clinton's voice, but he said, basically, your buddy George Bush knows all about this. Now, this is a kind of mocking reference to the fact that L.D. Brown was a big Bush supporter, you know. Uh, apparently very disappointed that Bush never got the nomination to run for president. Now, we talked earlier of Clinton's time in Arkansas being one long audition for the big C, you know. I'd never argue that the 1992 election was fixed somehow, or it was some kind of pre-agreed transfer of power from Bush's GOP to Clinton's Democrats. Uh, but I will say this. Remember that there's that hopeful reference that Hillary made to Reaganomics in her letter to Jim McDougall. Reaganomics, of course, uh, is a rather annoying term for the financial policies that were championed by people like Dutch, Bush, Casey, and a host of think tank ghouls from places like uh, the American Enterprise Institute, Casey's Manhattan Institute. Ultimately, this all just represented a huge right-wing pushback against that post-war social consensus, you know. Their vision was a deregulated, globalized economic system that was ripe for exploitation by American capital. And it's in this context that we need to understand why William Casey actually made so much sense, first as Reagan's campaign manager, then his CIA director, and of course then Bush's Iran-Contra collaborator. And this is to say nothing of all the other coups and dirty wars and destabilization operations that he oversaw. Casey was a free market fanatic and he discarded most of the post-church committee intelligence reforms and locked in 
and accelerated the outsourcing and the privatization of the Bush years and restored the CIA really to its historic role as, for lack of a better term, the freewheeling paramilitary arm of American capitalism and Western capitalism. Uh, and it's not that this hiatus was all that long, really, or even all that much of a hiatus, I mean, as we explored previously. It's just the agency offshored this activity to international partners while the heat died down in the States. And this is to say nothing of the, the massive economic precarity that was inflicted on the American working and middle class through these policy choices that led to, you know, deindustrialization. Uh, a process that devastated entire communities and impoverished millions, just as the Contra Coke and crack is beginning to flood into the States. You know, Britain underwent a very similar process under Margaret Thatcher, less crack and coke, of course, but it led to the same outcome, you know, which is just this very mean, very Darwinist almost uh, societal structure that also has been absolute hell on politics ever since then, you know, uh, it, after all, it invented Tony Blair. So with all this in mind, and I'm sorry for that detail, but with all this in mind, we can say that Clinton proved during his time in Arkansas that he was a guy who could be trusted to ensure that things would run the way certain people wanted them to run if he ever reached the White House. And he conclusively proved, really, that he was a safe pair of hands to the burgeoning right of the DNC. Um, the way that he could withstand the pressure of the public and judicial scrutiny that came of what he oversaw and ignored during his time in the governor's mansion in Arkansas, I think that was undoubtedly a major selling point. This is from a piece by Jeffrey St. Clair and Alexander Coburn about the drug ops at MENA. Quote, Clinton's claim of ignorance didn't ring true. One of his state prosecutors, Charles Black, brought the issue to Clinton's attention in 1988, emphasizing Arkansas's role as a nexus for international drug operations. Five years before this, in 1983, there was a federal investigation into drug money laundering at MENA, an investigation joined by Clinton's own state police. As part of that investigation, a federal grand jury was assembled. This grand jury was eventually dismissed and the local press carried reports that members of the panel had been prevented from seeing crucial evidence, hearing important witnesses and even seeing the 29-count draft indictment on money laundering drawn up by an attorney with the Justice Department's Operation Greenback. In 1989, Clinton received petitions from Arkansas citizens demanding that he convene a state grand jury and continue in the investigation. Winston Bryant made MENA an issue in his successful campaign for attorney general in 1990. A year later, Bryant turned over the state files involving MENA, along with petitions from 1,000 citizens to Iran-Contra prosecutor Lawrence Walsh. Later that year, on August 12, 1991, Clinton's advisor on criminal justice wrote to a concerned citizen to say that Clinton understood the matter of criminal activity in MENA was being conducted by Bryant, Walsh, and Arkansas representative Bill Alexander. Yet with all this knowledge, Clinton did nothing. 
The state attorney general did not have the power to conduct an investigation, but the state prosecutors did. When Charles Black urged Clinton to allocate funds for just such an investigation, Clinton refused his request. A team of Arkansas state police were taken off the case and their files were shredded. Lots of shredded files in Arkansas in the 1980s, folks. So Clinton could almost be a a character in Gravity's rainbow here, in that he is being groomed, fondled, if you will, by the octopus man. I mean, for fuck's sake, he even gave Arkansas Traveler Awards to Adolfo and Mario Calero, who were two high-ranking Contra operatives. I mean, he knew. He knew what he was doing. Come on. There's something else to keep in mind as well, which is that even as early as the mid 80s, the Clintons and their media outriders, starting local at first and then spreading nationwide, they began peddling one of the most successful modern conspiracy theories. Um, and this is by this was by way of deflecting this type of scrutiny that their financial conduct and political links brought them. So simply put, this conspiracy theory uh is that every single criticism of their their conduct, their misdeeds, is the product of a vast right-wing propaganda machine that cannot stand the idea of a progressive power couple, you know. And this is still this is still the go-to defense of them from the libs even now in 2023 when we are all in the mouth of the beast, in part because of policies they championed or locked in when in office, you know. This is in spite of the fact that Glenn Maxwell went to Chelsea's wedding, you know, that Jeff had a picture of Slick Willie wearing that blue dress hanging in his Manhattan townhouse. And all of this is still the product of a vast right-wing propaganda campaign. Okay. So yeah, I wasn't being facetious when I described all of this earlier as a world of hungry ghosts. These people are ravenous for more money, more power, more prestige, and they do not care who they devour on the way to getting them. Everything they do is clouded by desire and a way of looking at the world that divides people into two camps, those who feed with them and those who were there to be fed on. So in 1990, Charlene Wilson appeared before that grand jury investigating drugs and drug money in Arkansas with an absolute doozy of a story. Here she is. She's been interviewed for the documentary Obstruction of Justice in this clip. I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, okay? And uh, I worked at a club called the Bistros. And I met Roger Clinton there, uh, Governor Bill Clinton. Um, so a couple of the state troopers that went with him wherever he went, Roger Clinton, uh, had came up to me and he had asked me, could I get him some 
coke, you know. And ask for my one hitter, which a one hitter is a very small silver device, okay, that you stick up into your nose and you just squeeze it and it a snort of cocaine and go up in there. And uh, I watched um, Roger hand what I had gave, given him to um, Governor Clinton and he just kind of turned around and walked off. So Wilson has been described variously as a drug addict, a drug dealer, and a madame for the Dixie Mafia. And she testified that during at least Bill's first term as governor, she was part of the coke smuggling operations at Mina Airport. And she also supplied a little bit of beak to toga parties that were hosted by Roger Clinton. She said that Bill was a very frequent guest of honor at these parties and that she supplied coke directly to him on more than one occasion. Wilson was an on-again, off-again girlfriend of Roger Clinton and one Dan Harmon, who was a prosecutor for Saline County who was mobbed in deep with the Clintons, those Dixie old boys, and the Mina operations. Harmon would eventually be convicted of racketeering and extortion in the late 90s. Now, one outcome of an increasingly fractured and partisan media landscape, started through the 80s, up through the 90s, and it's hell now, is that it gets harder and harder to nail down specifics on stories like this about Democrat networks without ending up trawling a lot of hard right outlets, you know. So we're going to touch on this a little more later, but this is because by the 90s, the more centrist and liberal-leaning parts of the press were outright refusing to cover any of this stuff. You know, they rendered it toxic. So Wilson put herself in the crosshairs of the Arkansas machine. And a few weeks later, Dan Harmon led a raid on her apartment and he busted her for holding $100 worth of weed. And she was convicted and given 31 years for this. 31 years. Now, things get even more disturbing when we turn to Harmon's role as prosecutor. In this capacity, he put together a grand jury to investigate maybe the most famous crime in Arkansas history, which is the boys on the tracks case, you know. We won't go exhaustively long on this, but simply put, so these two kids, it was Don Henry and Kevin Ives, two teenagers, they were hit by a freight train in a town called Alexander. Now, the official story had it that they both got incredibly high and fell asleep on the railway tracks. The investigation was a fucking farce from the beginning, and the parents of the kids started to lose faith and trust uh, in the Arkansas state authorities. So they hired a San Antonio medical examiner to examine the kids' bodies, and he contradicted almost every finding of the Arkansas state medical examiner. That medical examiner had said that he detected THC levels in their blood that was the equivalent of about 20 joints, which nobody in the, uh, the kids' kin network was buying any of that. So the doctor from San Antonio did his autopsy and he found stab wounds and head injuries on the bodies and the cause of death was changed to, you know, homicide. Now, there are a number of different theories about what happened. And at some point in the future, again, we may return to this story and go deeper. But for now, what's important for us to know is all the theories have the boys discovering something they weren't meant 
to find, like a drug drop or a drug money drop. Now, according to Charlene Wilson, she had actually been at the tracks that night with Dan Harmon and a number of other figures in the Arkansas drug underworld waiting for a drop. By this point, there were rumors all over the state about how these drops were made. They were made by low-flying planes, C-130 air transports a lot of the time. They came in swooping low, and things were tossed down chutes, depending from the, the underside of the aircrafts, uh, and you know dropped in prearranged locations. Now, Charlene says that she thinks the boys had heard about this, and they wanted to see if they could find something, you know, like money, jewels, drugs, guns, maybe. Now, Mara Leverett wrote a book about this case called The Boys on the Tracks and included details from a confession letter that Wilson wrote while she was in prison. Wilson described how the boys had been spotted watching the drop and without a second's hesitation, Harmon and his cronies killed them and placed them on the tracks and then covered them with a tarp and the train ran over them. And she said that she gave Harmon the knife that he used to stab the boys. Now, in this reading, Harmon spearheaded the investigation. You know, he he led the prosecution so that he could get details of witnesses and go after them and possibly their families as well. So before we leave Arkansas, we should discuss one more Clinton project, which was the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. Now, the idea here was that ADFA would offer companies long-term loans, and they funded them by selling tax-exempt bonds. And it didn't take long before guys like Jackson Stevens and Dan Lasseter, uh, who was an Arkansas businessman and coat buddy of Roger Clinton, started to get in on the scheme. And there are strong suspicions that businesses involved in laundering drug money began using the ADFA as just another way to clean this cash So banks and businesses involved in ADFA, they appeared to kick back money in different ways to the Clintons as a token of appreciation of being approved for loans. Jackson Stevens, uh, with his controlling interest in Wortham Bank, he gave Bill a $2 million line of credit after he got his loan. And as with so many other ventures the Clintons were involved in, the record keeping was shoddy at best, ledgers were full of missing payments, money inexplicably disappeared, so on and so forth. In 1985, ADFA loaned money to a company called Park on Meter, a company that ostensibly manufactured parking meters. There was a guy called Mark Sweeney, and he sat on the Arkansas committee and he visited Park on Meter's headquarters And he discovered that the firm had sold some of its land to a company called MBVG, which in turn had leased it to the U.S. Army Reserve. So together with Bill Duncan, the uh, IRS guy, he noted camouflage trucks, industrial drums, smokescreen generators, and chemical tankers at the site. This was more equipment than you need for a basic U.S. Army Reserve base, you know. Now, this was all strange enough. And then an old friend of ours came forward with some very interesting information about what Park on Meter was up to. And this was Michael Riconosciuto. So he said the site at POM was a cover for the CIA and the US Army Chemical Unit. And as with Cabazon Reservation, 
POM was really there to disguise a secret weapons development project for the Contra War effort. Rico said that by 1982, it was obvious to the CIA that guns and bullets and bombs weren't going to be enough to break the Sandinistas. The Park on Misha site, as well as Mina Airport, that came to serve the same function as Cabazon. Both of them were just two nodes in a nationwide network of clandestine research and development black sites that were financed by drug money and other off-the-books funds. Rico says that POM partnered with Stormont Labs and Wackenhut in Arkansas to develop biological and chemical weapons to assist the Contras. He says he was brought in to consult because of his experience at that joint venture in California. Now, the ties to Clinton here go beyond just alone, right? Park Omita was supervised by Skeeter Ward, who was the brother-in-law of Clinton operative Webster Hubble, and Park Omita itself had been founded by Seth Ward, who was Webster Hubble's father-in-law. So these stories periodically returned all through Clinton's time as president, and I haven't even touched on... <sighs> right... There is a body count, in a sense, okay? But I, I just cannot do it. I can't get into all of that. But what I will say is, if you check out a piece by Sam Smith that I believe Progressive Review, he goes into it there. And what you'll find is that there are an awful lot of people who had dirt on the Clintons, they may have had information that could have led to their arrest or, you know, they crossed them in some way. And yeah, Arkansas looks like a very lovely place from the pictures I've seen of it, but um, there seemed to have been an awful lot of suicidal depression going around in the circles in which the Clintons moved um, in the 80s and 90s. That's all I'll say. Look it up. I just, I don't have space or capacity to get into it all here tonight. Anyway, we mentioned earlier that an increasingly cowed and partisan national media was, you know, determined not to examine any of this stuff by the time Bill got to the White House. If they did, they made a point of attacking every witness and whistleblower they came across, you know, scorched earth policy, which should get you wondering why are they this desperate to discredit all these people? Because it feels desperate when you read these pieces. Now throw in on top of that how heavily infiltrated and compromised both the main parties were by the 1990s. And you start to get a feel for why probing any of this with an honest heart might be fairly shattering for a lot of journalists who've been trained to view the world a certain way, right? They are lackeys for the state, and it's just too heartbreaking for them, I think, a lot of the time. Yeah, the fair few of them are crooked and venal and greedy, but I think a lot of them are just hopelessly in love with the idea of what they do. But when they're actually confronted with something that might upset their vision of the society that has given them so much, they just cannot at all bring themselves to pull on those threads, you know. Um, so Sarah McClendon, 
very famous uh, journalist, she wrote about how Al Gore, as vice president, had approached Clinton directly in 1995 or so and told him he had a pile of evidence that suggested both the GOP and the Democrats were turning a blind eye to drug money that was being laundered via campaign contributions. Now, if you're a journalist, then investigating this at a local or even national level might be good for a front page splash, but now remember everything we've discovered throughout this series. Um, you can't stop there. You start pulling on these threads because they go beyond a little bit of dirty money. In two or three skips, you're suddenly dealing with CIA hitmen, stolen software, state-managed violence, coups, secret US foreign policy, fucking secret chemical weapons research. It goes on and on and on. And if your outlet is committed to protecting one side or another of the clown show, you definitely don't want to chase a story like, you know, the Mina operations, the octopus, the Inslaw affair, because of what that might expose, you know. It could expose Hillary Clinton's offshore banking practices. It could expose Bush's ease around assassins and narco-terrorists. Could expose murders committed by people close to Arkansas politics when Clinton was a going concern there. And a terrific example of this is the time Roger Morris and Sally Denton collaborated on an expose of the MENA operations. And they eventually had something like 2,000 pages of painstakingly, meticulously collected evidence and a banger of a pitch, you know. I'm not even sure if they knew that it linked into all this other stuff that we've been talking about, but they knew they had something. And when they offered it to the New York Times, Michael Levitus turned them down. And the reason for that was, as he put it, this is more of a Wall Street Journal story, which is to say, this will upset the people we are curting in the American political establishment. Now, similarly, Time magazine ran their famous Anatomy of a Smear piece in 1992, and this effectively locked in the right-wing propaganda conspiracy theory that the Clintons and outriders have been using ever since to dismiss and justify their every single indiscretion, you know. Um, and the Time editor of this, during the time when this piece was written, was Strobe Talbot. There are some incredible names in this series. Strobe Talbot, he was given a job at the State Department after they ran this piece. His wife, Brooke, had worked as Hillary's assistant during the 1992 election. She was appointed to run the White House Fellows in 1993. Uh, Jim Norman at Forbes, he chased many of these links, as we've said, to systematics and promise and the CIA and the Clintons and Foster and Mina and on and on and on. He was told flat out by his bosses that Forbes couldn't run any of his stories about Arkansas in the 80s because Jackson Stevens firms were such major sources of ad revenue. Now, I can't think of anything more end of history than all of this. You know, journalists being told that not only are they harshing the post-Cold War, post-Bush buzz by trying to do their jobs, but they can't do their jobs anyway because there's too much money at stake, you know? And that's another interesting thing about the system, the way that Jackson Stevens' money hides itself 
as Jim Norman found out, you know, he may well have not had any idea whatsoever that these random companies that advertise in Forbes are a subsidiary of a subsidiary of one of Jackson Stevens' firms. You know what I mean? And yet the influence is everywhere, diffuse, indirect, and shaping media output, shaping the things that we're allowed to talk about. And yeah, speaking of which, James Norman is a pretty interesting figure in all this. The piece that he wrote that led to his dismissal from Forbes, that piece we've just talked about was called Oil, Guns, and Greed. Now, ostensibly, it was killed because Forbes higher-ups decided his sources weren't credible. But then the offer they gave him to either go on paid sabbatical or resign seems extra, you know. This is from a CNN article that I dug up. The tone of smug delight at seeing someone who's gone up against this machine get thrown to the wolves is a little bit unbearable, but bear with me anyway. Quote, Norman, who had spent 10 years at Business Week before he joined Forbes five years ago, couldn't let go of his story. He eventually published the piece, renamed Fostergate, in the August issue of Media Bypass, a magazine whose subtitle is The Uncensored National News. Shortly thereafter, Norman sent Michaels a memo urging him to reconsider publishing the Foster story in Forbes. But the memo which quickly found its way onto the internet, made another allegation that Norman attributed to anonymous CIA sources that Caspar Weinberger, Reagan's defense secretary and now Forbes chairman, was one of scores of government officials who had stashed millions in Swiss accounts. Norman claimed that the booty had been wiped out by a renegade band of CIA computer hackers. This is who we were talking about last episode. Uh, Squad D... When they retired from Squad D, these CIA hackers renamed themselves the Fifth Column. Goes on to say, the embarrassing memo was particularly ill-timed. Malcolm S. Forbes Jr., the magazine's 48-year-old editor-in-chief, is readying a campaign to run for president on the GOP ticket. I mean, talk about indirect influence in this system. It's right there. Right there. That might explain why it was easier to call Norman a crank than it was to actually take any of the things he was saying seriously, pick up the ball and run with it and find out if those sources really are reliable or not. Jim was basing most of his story off the say-so of a guy called Charles Hayes. And he already figured in the promised story. Remember, he's the computer dealer and alleged member of the, the fifth column. Now, Hayes had a lot of wild things to tell him. Uh, he said that Vince Foster was an Israeli asset. He said that as many as 40 members of Congress had declined to run again or else were resigning, in the process of resigning after Hayes and his band of retired CIA hackers had given them photocopies of their secret, illicit Swiss bank account information. Now, I said last episode, I buy that he was some kind of CIA tech whiz and maybe he even did hack a bunch of offshore accounts, but I think it's just as likely that the fifth column, if it existed, it was funneling a lot of this cash into its own pockets, you know, its own offshore accounts. And further hurting uh, Charles Hayes' credibility is the fact that he'd been charged with putting a contract out on his own son by the time he sat down to chat to Norman, apparently because Hayes Jr. had cooked his mind on drugs, as Hayes put it. So Hayes always maintained this was a frame-up job, and his kid did in fact tell reporters that if his dad had wanted him dead, quote, 
he would have done it himself. Which, okay, yeah, sure. It's quite the way to uh, clear daddy's name and restore his reputation. So what I will say is prior to his Fostergate story, Norman seems to have been, by all accounts, widely regarded as a very reliable, very honest business journalist. Wasn't known for paranoia or conspiracy theorizing until he reported something negative about the Clintons. And suddenly he was. Now, I don't think there's much point getting too deep into Hayes' story because it's largely similar to other characters we've met on this journey, you know. We're left with another maddening series of known unknowns, just like with Rico and Booth Nichols and Sam Israel and on and on. And there's a reason why it's very hard to verify uh, this stuff about Hayes and the fifth column and Vince Foster. Um, as you can see in the examples I just gave and the media's conduct more broadly up to the present day, what they did through the 90s in the, you know, the, the ripples of the Inslaw affair and connected satellite regimes, they made a concerted effort to merge conspiracy theory and conspiracy fact. You know, it wasn't just the media, the mainstream media that was doing this, but that is what ended up happening. The theory and the fact started to merge together around many aspects of, yeah, what you might call the octopus story, I guess. Now, very few journalists were keen to probe the Inslaw affair too deeply uh, because first and foremost, it's an absolutely insane quagmire, you know, and there were no new developments after Danny's death, really. So, you know, it felt like they would just be pursuing threads endlessly into that quagmire. And then on top of that, you do have like self-interest and career advancement that also play very strong roles. But this doesn't require a bunch of people in, you know, shady back rooms issuing talking points on threat of death and swearing people to secrecy or anything like that. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, about how this social and economic order, you know, the professional ties that bind people across different sectors of institutional power, mean that people are incentivized to warp and transform information into marginalia if it's inconvenient to the broader system you know and therefore it's hell on good objective research beyond a certain point so a party line was established around the clintons around bush around all of this shit that had gone on in the 80s and up through the 90s and anyone saying anything counter to any of it was much easier to marginalize and isolate to the point where even giving what these people have to say, just the sympathetic hearing, was enough to get you consigned to the crank pile, just like Jim Norman. Now, I'd argue that this problem has only really gotten worse because the business model underpinning much of the news media means that decent jobs are increasingly difficult to get, very hard to hold on to, and it's very difficult to believe anything you encounter online is necessarily real as a result. Because, you know, all these journalists now have all these pressures that are brought to bear on them to shape information a certain way. Nobody wants to be the one who says, you know, uh, actually, when their editor is asking for glowing op-eds about Poppy Bush's legacy or the Clinton's philanthropic efforts, you know. And it's in the mid-90s, 
you know, largely because of these subterranean forces, these indirect um, sources of influence, that's when promise comes to assume its place as a piece of folklore in the internet age. You know, I think I described it a couple of episodes back as dispersing to the margins of the internet. You know, you have people like Sherry Seymour, uh, Jay Allen Grab, Dick Russell, Ken Thomas, and Michael Rupert. They do their best, you know, to cover it, produce some very good work off the back of it, along with outlets like even Wired. They did a very good long form piece about it back in like 93. Uh, you had Steam Shovel, Progressive Review, High Times. They all do their best to fill in the gaps and build on the story and cultivate new leads and whatnot in the absence of major mainstream media interest. But invariably, they find that you can't tell the story of Promise and the Hamiltons and Inslaw without expanding out into all the other subjects we've discussed over the last couple of months. You know, it comes very hard to find the cutoff point. But what happened then is the data points surrounding this story accrued and people could go online and research this stuff themselves and exchange more and more information. And soon, it, yeah, it becomes hard to know when to stop. So the story of Promise and the octopus became simultaneously an interlinked and exhaustively, obsessively documented series of real criminal conspiracies, accompanied by an additional constellation of conspiracy theories designed to explain the connections between the data points, you know. And finally, something like a simulation of a conspiracy theory, you know, a, a grand unifying something that existed in a space between reality and fantasy, but nevertheless, it said something true about the way that technology and globalization and state secrecy were coalescing and changing the way that people thought about uh, what really motivated the government and what was going on in society at large and so on. And it's in thinking about all this and in looking at the the machinations of all these elite players and these factions and meta groups and networks, you know, and the technologies they deployed to assist them, the use of disinformation and trivia and surveillance to muddy the narrative structures around the Inslaw affair and the uncanny way that reality and paranoia and fever dreams sort of bleed together around this story and how this was all turbocharged by the internet and just the flood of information that comes with that. We can start to appreciate something deeper here. And it's something that I've been groping towards for some time. And finally, I've got a handle on it now that we're close to the finish line. Because we aren't, strictly speaking, just discussing a series of connected and interlocking scandals surrounding the theft of some software from a far different time that the March of Progress has left behind, you know we are actually discussing the infancy of the 21st century and how things are done today. So we've said a lot about how the system creates problems, which it then offers insane solutions to, and how it can incorporate you know, critiques or troubling signs of its own instability and corruption and transform them into meaningless trivia. 
Now, with Clinton leaving the White House and Bush replacing him off the back of a fucking, frankly, Stalin election, there were plenty of ominous aberrations, surreal aberrations, at the margins for anyone who cared to look. These um, aberrations suggested that something was deeply, profoundly wrong with the system and that something big was coming. They suggested that, if anything, despite the return to power of the neocons and, you know, the resurgent right, things were even worse than that suggested. Now, we'd only find out about the extent of the foreknowledge years after the fact, but in the two or three years leading up to the turn of the millennium, we are told that the warning lights were flashing red everywhere and they were comprehensively ignored. Now, is it possible to recognize that what was about to happen for them was a much needed accelerant for a multitude of different trends that had been developing for decades? You know, uh, trends that we've been exploring throughout this series privatization, the hollowing out of the public sphere, the increased role of military contractors, the rise and spread of the surveillance state apparatus, the erosion of a, an already crumbling democratic process, the recapture of the internet, and, you know, a new all-purpose enemy that could justify all of this. Promise and its progeny were now embedded everywhere. They were collecting and monitoring information from all over the world. Everything from military base inventories to the stock market to who was moving through airports and across borders. And yet the more you read, the more you suspect or can't help suspecting that one of the major reasons they were using this technology was at least in part to facilitate certain secret schemes and to ensure that they went off without a hitch in order to serve certain agendas. In the mid-2000s, a pair of whistleblowers actually came forward with very troubling stories about some of those ominous, surreal aberrations they discovered at the margins. One of them was Indira Singh, who we've already met. The other was an FBI translator who said she'd uncovered evidence that all through the 90s now lacking a threat as potent as the Soviet Union and feeling flush from its victory in the Cold War, the Western intelligence community had been working very closely with organized crime groups and terrorists they'd previously backed in that fight against communism in the 80s. They financed these efforts, she says, by running drug and arms trafficking networks staffed by metagroups of PMCs and gangster assets. And the goal was to seed instability all over the world to justify US-led interventions and imperial expansion that would open up new markets to Western capital. When she pursued these threads, she says she discovered a vast web of institutional corruption that was carefully ignored by the people who should have been doing something to fix it. And when it wasn't being ignored by them, they were actively participating. Now, it's impossible to read her account and not think of the Afghan secularist who was quoted by Stephen Kinzer in Overthrow, who said, for God's sake, you are financing your own assassins. This whistleblower... She was called Sybil Edmonds, and she said a select number of the FBI agents that she worked alongside were well aware 
of all of these operations, and they'd even given them a collective nickname. She said, the FBI agents I spoke to called it Gladio B. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. 